Welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. Today I'm here with Nully of the Nullifidian, <laughs> the Nullifidian YouTube channel. Uh, you're not making my job any easier. Um, and she's also on a new podcast called Heretics Corner, where she is a co-host with a past guest of mine as well, Obeyed. And welcome to my podcast, Nelly. Thank you for having me on. So Nelly is from Australia and you are an ex-Muslim. I am. And I, from my, what I understand, your mother converted to Islam and therefore you were born into it. Well, so she converted to Islam when I was like well, two years old. I was a toddler. So, yeah, so in all technicality, I was born, as almost all people on earth are born Muslim, in case anybody didn't know that. Um, (laughs) And, but she converted before I was like able to make my own choices or anything like that, because what three-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old can make their own choice about what religion they want to follow? Uh, Yeah, I learned that, I mean, uh, I don't know, something like over a year ago when I started seeing that. People who converted to Islam were referred to as reverts, and I and, yep. I and at first I was confused by that, and I think most people are. But according to the the Ummah, the larger Muslim community of the world, that we are all all born Muslim, and yes. <laughs> and then we and then we leave, we all leave Islam if we're not Muslim, and then we revert. So we don't convert; we revert. They come back to. Islam. So if I, even though I was, I'm not Muslim, for example, my family is not Muslim at all, but if I converted to Islam, they would refer to me as a revert, which is confusing at times for a lot of yeah, us. Yeah, it, it, it confuses a lot of people. Um, and what actually uh, Muslims say is that so everyone's born a Muslim and it's their parents that take them off the straight path. How does that work for for people who are born in countries that where there is just no Islam at all? Like like Amazonians, you know, that even live disconnected from the entire world, right? And have never even heard of most things we're aware of. Like they're also born Muslim? Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> As a, it's one a... of the many logical aspects of um, Islam. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, in what sense, do, I mean, do you know more about this? Like, in what sense do they think people are born Muslim? Is it like we have Islam in our brains at birth? Um, I think it's it's something to do along the lines with, um, now don't like quote me on this, but um, so, you know, everyone is, before everyone is born, there's a book um, and it's written with every single thing that you're ever going to do in your life. Yeah, so every good thing and every bad thing that you're going to do is written in this book. And then um, since Allah is the one that, like, kind of, you know, says be and then you come into being, um, everyone is born in the faith of Islam. So they're, they're pure and they're innocent and pure and innocent are Muslims. And it's 
when their parents are like, if you're you're born a Muslim but then your parents are Christian, they'll take you and make you a Christian or a Hindu and they'll make you a Hindu or any of that sort of stuff. And they, they misguide you from the true path that is supposedly Islam. And that's why when they say when you come back to the fold of Islam, they call you a revert. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask about y- your mother's conversion to islam like do you, do you know because you were too little when uh, it happened but i mean do you know uh, the story behind it? i know it all right i know it. It, it it's a favorite thing for many 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 muslims is hearing um convert stories it's an inspiration it's amazing um so she was raised catholic um and then you know jumped in between a, a variety of religions so um you know, she was Pentecostal, um, she left religion for a bit, and then she became a born-again. And she was a churchgoer, and I, rem- I do remember us going to church. Um, I remember, like, sitting in the back of the room and just kind of being here and listening to all these people sing and stuff. And um, for me, the realisation that my mum had become Muslim was she'd put a hijab on. Like, she went out one day and she'd come home and she was wearing this cloth on her head. And I was a bit like, you know, as a kid, it's like, oh, okay, mum's wearing this weird thing on her head. But it wasn't until I was a bit older when, you know, she started giving you know, talks and all that sort of stuff about her conversion story. So from what I can recall, she was out with some friends on a night out in the town and she met a bunch of Muslim guys. And as Muslims love to give dawah or uh, proselytize wherever they are, it doesn't matter where they are, you could be in a gosh darn toilet and they'll preach at you. And... um they started talking about religion in like a nightclub of all places. <laughs> um, I, I think it's kind of a tactic they have, like uh, Muslim men, is like they try and flirt with women and talk about religion to kind of like get them in the fold. I don't know. Um, and so she met these guys and they started questioning her about Christianity and, and being a born again. And they said, oh, you know, ask your whatever they call like priest or pastor or whatever. Um, or can you ask him answer these questions, like answer Trinity and answer what is that like creation of life and all these sort of questions. And so she went to her, whatever the guys called it, church, and um, he couldn't give her an answer that she found satisfactory. And so she was like, okay, well, these Muslim guys clearly had a better an answer. So she went to the local mosque and she spoke to the imam there and she asked him all these questions and she became Muslim that day and she put her hijab on that day. Did she take the shahada, the declaration? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so she took. Yeah, she. she did. So when she, so she went to the mosque and she listened to what the imam had to say, and she took her shahada, um, declaration of faith, and she put her hijab on, and then she came home, and yeah, she was Muslim, and then that's where my life turned to shit. (laughs) Well, before you get to that, it's. I mean, it's pretty amazing how easy it is to convert to Islam. I mean, people want to always compare. Islam to other religions, right? It's like, oh, but this happens in Christianity. This, ha- you know, the Old Testament and things like this. But there are real differences between religion, and one of them, for example, mm. is that story. I mean, that's that's very common in Islam. It's it's easy to convert to Islam. In other religions, I mean, even some Christian religions, sometimes it's it's relatively easy, but sometimes it's not. And Judaism, it's extremely hard. Yeah, I think. Yeah, like, I mean, at the end of the day, all that you need to be to be just a Muslim, like, you know, they say just like a, just a Muslim, is you just have to believe in Allah, um, a Muhammad, his angels, the books, predestination, 
uh, Judgment Day. Like those are all the things that you just need to believe in to become a Muslim. Like that's it. That's all you need to believe in, nothing else. And then everything comes later when you learn. And a lot of the time, you know, imams and, and sheikhs and that have a lot of experience giving da'wah or, you know, like I said, proselytizing, oh, I can't speak, um, you know, preaching to people. They have a lot of experience. And I feel like the people who come and question Islam in a way, they have like these preconceived ideas of, you know, what Islam is um, and where, or, or they're looking for something. So I feel like in, like, you know, my, my mother's case is that she was looking for something that Christianity wasn't giving her. Um, you know, whether it be that it gave her um, a, a sense of empowerment because a lot of women who are from the background that my mother came from, you know, they didn't necessarily have power in their lives and Islam sells that illusion of um, if you're, you know, if you're a Muslim woman, you've got all these rights and people are going to cherish you and you're not going to be, like, curved at. And, I, you know, it's, with women, I think it's definitely that's what sells them in it. Um, and that's why I think also there's more female converts to Islam than there are male converts to Islam. Well, I, I from from what I know, um, just through research and conversations and seeing interviews and et cetera, et cetera, there is there's definitely some a few things that are particular may you know, not so much to islam in 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 some senses but in some senses they are particular to islam um for example when you you convert to islam especially as a woman and especially as a white woman because a lot of these communities come from more middle eastern or southeast asian backgrounds they they praise any woman who converted into the religion and one of the reasons is because a man a muslim man can marry a non-Muslim woman, but a Muslim woman can't marry a non-Muslim man. But they still would insist that they probably convert. Um, yes. And also that the hijab itself is an identifier that a lot of women in most religions don't have. It's not. It's not too common in most religions that you have an an identifier as obvious as the hijab on you. So yeah. When when she puts on the hijab and she's in around a Muslim community, she's going to get praised a lot. This is something I hear from especially a lot of converts oh, or yeah. reverts, um, yeah. and especially if they're white, and especially if they're women, and especially if they're wearing the hijab, they'll get a lot of praise if they're around Muslims. Then all the details start coming out, right? The fi the fine prints of what it is to be a Muslim. Yeah, and unfortunately, my mother decided that they, all this fine print is perfectly acceptable. <laughs> did she? But she must have not known too much from what you're telling me. Oh, so... of course, of course, no. Nah, she didn't. She didn't really know that much about Islam, but she did pretty much start attending, you know, like um, the Islamic classes at the mosque and some learning how to read the Quran, and you know, she started doing like a lot of these sort of things, and um, it also helps when it comes to, like, you know, the converts, is especially female ones, is they get them married so quickly. Like, it's like it's ridiculous how fast. Like, with my mum, when she married my stepdad, she met him three times and then they got married. Like, three times. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an arranged marriage, was it? Uh, no, I, I, it wasn't an arranged marriage. Um, but it's encouraged. So, it's, like, pushed. Like, get oh, you should get yeah. married, you should get married kind of thing. Right. Yeah, they're mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, you should get married. You should, you, should, you know, as a Muslim woman, you need a mahram, who's gonna, a, a guardian who's going to protect you. And so um, 
what happened was um, it's a story is is quite um, common when I know the story of how like they met was so my mum was invited to an Islamic barbecue and they're like oh come sister come and meet the community and so she's you know showed up at this barbecue and she was there and then um, my stepdad was there and then after my mum had left um, one of the ladies um, husband goes oh there's a new um, revert sister you know she's unprotected is there any brothers here who would be interested in getting married to her and then my stepdad well, she's, put his unpro- hand up. she's unprotected yes <laughs> wait wait what in what sense like because she doesn't have a mahram like a a, yeah. a, ma- a male guardian to yeah to to drag her around the world protected by <laughs> i don't know i don't know <laughs> um but, so yeah. then what happened was is so, like, my mom didn't even know this was kind of happening. So she gets invited to these people's house, and, and my stepdad's there. And she honestly thought that he was there to marry their daughter. And then she shows up again another time, and they just kind of, like, they talk, and there's always somebody in the room. And then, yeah, so they met, I think it was, yeah, it was three times. I remember, like, the house that they went to. And um, and then, you know, he went to the imam, because the imam was her wali. So a wali is, um, like, a... Uh, uh, I guess it's like the actual term for a guardian. So if a woman doesn't have a father or a brother or anything like that, they have she has a wali who can be like an imam or an appointed male who other men can go to and propose or offer their hands in marriage for. And so he approached the imam at the mosque and said, oh, I want to marry this sister, and then they arranged it, and then they got married. And that was it. The next minute I had a mom in a hijab and a Somalian stepdad. <laughs> how, how wait? How fast did this all happen? Uh it would have been as like six months. Wow. Minimum. Yeah, it, it's quite fast. Like, like that's why I said like, um, they tend to get converts married very quickly, is because as the years progress by, um, a lot of converts were pushed in my mum's direction, and so and she was also the same thing, like getting them quickly married off to Muslim men. I mean, what what was happening in your life? that was influenced by this like did, did mm-hmm. were you old enough to remember this happening what the her I mean, getting married or her marrying off other converts are you her getting married um so i was about 3 years old oh. and i ruined her wedding <laughs> how, how did you do that i can believe you did oh, that I, but I, how'd you do that oh <laughs> <laughs> well, um I injured myself at the wedding and she had to like in the at the middle of the wedding she has to like rush me off to the emergency department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, she never let me let that down. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what you did? What 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 did what happened to you that you had to get rushed through the emergency? I th- I, th- I think what happened was I was it was, so basically they had the the wedding and then it was like the the, the feast afterwards. And I think I was walking into a door and, like, some lady walked. I remember it was in a doorway and she, like, walked into me and then, like, I started screaming. And I was a child, yeah. Children scream for no reason, but I ended up in the emergency department. <laughs> yeah. I was a terrible child. So um, you're growing up and now in this Muslim family. So what what were the conditions like? What, what was it like growing up in that family? Um... I, it was, it was obviously a bit different. So I, my, um, stepdad was Somalian and he, well, he is Somali. It's not like he lost his nationality. <laughs> um, he obviously was raised very differently and he didn't know how to, you know, deal with kids, especially like Western kids, even though I was only three. And so 
a lot of it was like kind of like a respect thing. So I had a massive cultural shift because, you know, before I was just this little kid, I was a brat. And then I was like, all of a sudden at three, I'm being told that I have like, you have to respect your mom and you can't do this and you can't do that. And I think it was very confronting for me at such a young age. Um, I was, you know, quickly uh, thrown into like madrasa, which is like Islamic school and learning the Quran and Arabic. And um, I remember, you know, as the years progressed by and I hit primary school, it was, you know, oh, it's time for you to put a hijab on. And it was kind of, it wasn't a compulsory thing when I was five or six. Um, but when I hit seven, it was like, no, you have to put the hijab on and you have to pray and you have to do all this. And um, which is, is in um, hadith, it says, you know, once a child reaches seven, that you should make them pray and um, the girl should wear a hijab and stuff like that. Did uh, When that happened and you had to start putting on a hijab, how did you feel about it? Did you hate it? Did you did you love it because now you're dressing like your mother? Like, how'd you feel about that? You're brainwashed because it, it transitions to why I ended up being forced into the niqab is little girls like to dress like their mum. It doesn't matter what um, culture you're from or religion you're from or background you have. Like, little kids like to dress like their mum. It's like little girls who wear their mum's high heels and go play in her makeup. For me, it was... Um, putting hijab on but uh, the difference is it wasn't like it was like oh here put the hijab on it was kind of like a slow thing it's like oh I didn't wear the hijab but when we prayed we had to wear the hijab and then just kind of like position to where I was wearing it kind of full-time really the only time I ever took it off was when I was at home and because you're because uh, it was from such a young age and I think many uh, Muslim and ex-Muslim women can also agree is or even men, um, from such a young age, respect and obedience to your parents is heavily enforced. So when your parents come to you and they say, you're a Muslim, you need to wear a hijab, you're not going to turn around as this, you know, seven-year-old child being like, no, <laughs> you just don't do, you just don't do that, yeah? Um, and, I, hey, it stopped you from getting head lice. <laughs> it stopped you for what? From getting head lice. Oh, <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> it's typically when and I never had to brush my hair in the morning. <laughs> but, but, um, as, well, I guess you, you, like you said, you, you, you enjoyed it as far as that you probably didn't totally understand what it was, but you knew that you were dressing like your mother. Yes. Right. And, I, and, and also, I guess it was encouraged when you go to madrasa and, and things like that in Islamic school. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, even it was even so far as you know, I, I wasn't allowed to wear pants. Like I was always skirt, long skirts in the house and t-shirts, and, and then it progressed to long sleeve t-shirts. And um, yeah, it was quite uh, the modesty culture and the influence of modesty was pushed on me from a very young age. Did it ever happen to you that people thought you were foreign because you wore a hijab and they? They assume you're Muslim, and therefore they think, "Oh, she, her, she must, she's probably a foreigner, or her mother is, and things like that." Um, because of um, like other Muslims would just assume I was Turkish or Bosnian. They just assumed I was a European Muslim. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they'd see me with my stepdad and get really confused because you know he was he's African. <laughs> He's like a black man. And they'll be like, why is this like white girl like with blue eyes with like six old black man? 
Um, and then obviously hearing me because I was I had to I had to call him dad. Like I had to call him my dad. So I was calling him Baba and Abi and um, Abo and stuff like that. So I was calling him, you know, like the Arabic words for dad and the Somalian words for dad. So um, yeah, it confused a lot of people. Um, no one really questioned. Like they were like, oh, you're foreign. They just uh, because where we were living at the time, the Muslim community has been there for like the mosque has been there for 130 years. So Muslims have been in that community for such a long time that it was kind of, oh, there's another one. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see. I yeah. 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 So these are not. Like so the people there are, are probably multi generational mu- Muslims. They they. Yeah. I see. Mm-hmm. Where where I live, where I grew up, yeah. So yeah. so what else? Like as you got a bit older, past ten. Like, how did you feel towards Islam? Did you become more Muslim? Did you start to reject it? Did you not care? What happened as far okay. as that side? Um, so obviously, uh, willing to kind of rewind a little bit um, mm-hmm. to back to my, like my mum's Islam and uh, the Islam that she follows. Um, she's very hardline. We're talking, you know, like Salafi Wahhabi, uh, you know, very pro-jihad, very much like Growing up, we had the videos of the Chechen fighters and with the uh, the song Sana for and like that sort of like music, the jihadi kind of music. Um, there was a big influence because we have such a huge um, Bosnian community. There was a massive like Mahajirun, um, you know, the soldiers who were fighting against the Serbians, like all their family, their, their children, and and they themselves who had fled that were there. So it was a lot of uh, we grew up around. I knew what jihad was. I knew who a holy war was growing up, and so. My mum was very, very strict with regards to Islam. You know, there was no mixing with boys and um, no music, no TV, like a lot of these sort of things. And so um, I kind of didn't like it because I, I don't like being restricted. I don't like being told I can't talk to this person or I can't talk to that person. Like I remember one time there was a girl at my school and her name was Aria and my mum I was like to my mom, oh, I've got this new friend. I think I was in year three. I'm like, oh, her name's Aria. And mom's like, you can't be friends with her. I'm like, why? She's like, oh, her name's Jewish. She must be a Jew and you can't be friends with her. And I couldn't comprehend it. And I was like, but she's so nice and I like her. I still stayed friends with her. I just didn't ever mention her again to my mom. <laughs> and um, I couldn't understand. Like I understood that, you know, like Jehennam and Jenna, so um, help and heaven, I could underst- I understood the concept of those, but I couldn't understand why certain people got to go to heaven and certain people got to go to hell. Like I couldn't I couldn't comprehend why just because someone is a, a disbeliever or a non-Muslim they're going to go to hell. And um, I grew up listening to you know sheikhs like Abu Hamza from the UK and Sheikh Faisal from the UK, um, Anwar Awlaki. Like he was constantly in our house, like constantly. So I'm hearing all these lectures all around me saying like. Oh, these guffar want to do this, and these guffar want to do that, and um. And these are very hardline shakes. Yes. So, mm-hmm. um, Abu Hamza is. Uh, all you need to do is just type his name into Google, <laughs> and Google Images, and he'll pop up. Um, but he is a is or was I'm not sure. I have I'm not in the loop of who is alive and who's dead and who's in jail at the moment. Um, but he was, I think he fought in Afghanistan in the Soviet war or like when the Soviets were there and like initially there. And, um, he has, he doesn't have hands. So he has like these two like claw things and he also is missing an eye. 
Um, Sheikh Faisal is a Jamaican English, uh, scholar. He was imprisoned in the UK for terrorism charges or, or promoting terrorism or something, and now he lives in Jamaica because he was um, you know, basically kicked out. Um, and Anwar Awlaki has the privilege of being the a US citizen who is killed by a, a US drone strike in Yemen, and he was a very hardline preacher calling for the death of the kuffar and infidels and like like that was like those are like my bedtime stories that's what i would hear as i was going to sleep so um my mom had this very kind of and it was it was always so strange because it's like you're an australian you're a white woman and you have such hatred for your own people and you know so she'd have moments where she'd pull me out of school because she didn't like that i was learning a certain subject like you know, in um, my education system in Australia, you know, you, you do, like, music class, and I was forbidden to do music class. Um, she lobbied the schools so that we could have an Islamic studies class in our public state school, and we'd have a chef would come and teach us Islamic studies in our secular school. And so by the time I reached 10, 11 um, you know, I'd already had kind of experienced that where, you know, I wasn't allowed to have any non-Muslim friends. I wasn't allowed to have any friends who were boys. I wasn't allowed to do, like, so many of these things. And I think my mum took advantage of the fact that we'd moved states and she completely pulled me out of school. So the highest level of education I received whilst living at home is grade six. Why did she pull you out of school? Because she could teach me everything that I needed to know and she could also control what I was being taught. Um, so she could correct the curriculum. So She didn't want um, you having a I, non-Islamic education. Yes, basically. pretty much. That, that's, okay. that's, yeah, that's the best way of saying it. So mm-hmm. she, she could turn around. Like my parents, they bought like the entire Encyclopedia Britannica and my homework or my schoolwork was to um, pick a subject in the encyclopedia and write about it. And then she'd read through it and she'd be like, oh, you know, we don't believe this is Muslims. This is not true. Or this is haram or um, just things like that. So it was, I think it was more to create a controlled environment to just ensure that I wasn't being corrupted by the evil West. <laughs> How does that happen that a person like your mother who was not brought up Muslim and just met some guys and went to a mosque and converted become that hard line. They uh, are. Well, I personally think she has mental problems. (laughs) That's my personal opinion. And I'm not a psychologist. Um, I think it's, it's when you, people go so far down the rabbit hole that they can't get back out. So they right. start embracing small things. Like she put the niqab on, oh, I would have been six, when she, oh, probably younger than that when she put the niqab on. And and she she's never taken it off ever since she put it on. Like she still wears it to this day. In 45-degree summers, she's wearing that niqab. She, the face veil, for people who don't know. She, yeah, she, the niqab. She, she, she started, well, yeah, <laughs> just I worry about people sometimes who are, who are not Muslim. And, and it sounds like a very typical thing everyone should know, but trust me, a lot of people don't know the yeah. first thing yeah. about um, Islam. The burqa, the face veil, the ninja mask. <laughs> but it was um, it was the one where she covers her face, but you could see her eyes? Um, so she she had a niqab uh, that had where she could, there was like two layers to it. So I used to wear the same ones as well. 
um, where you had like this eye slit available, but you had a cloth on top which, which was a lot thinner and you could pull that over your face. Right. Um, so you could have your eyes covered. So I at one point was wearing the, as well, like my mother, the full, like everything was covered. I was a floating tent. So with the with the face veil, a long, long dress yeah. and even gloves and things like that? Yeah. Wow. So, um, it's, yeah, it's, so my mum believes that the niqab is fard. So fard is the Arabic word for compulsory, which means it has to be worn. Like you, you don't have a choice. It's not recommended. It's you have to do it. When did you start so, wearing it? Uh, so she encouraged me to wear it when I was 12. 12? Wow. What was that experience like? Well, I wasn't going to school, so it's not like oh, right. no one really commented. Um, it was... I feel like she pushed it on me so young, and it may have also been a factor of her pulling me out of school, so she could... It just adding more to that control aspect. Because, you know, like I, I've said it previously it's where little girls like to be like their mums so I you know as a young child was always seeing my mum wearing a niqab and she's like oh are you gonna wear the niqab I'm like yeah when I'm an adult <laughs> you know kids are like you know they say it right and then you know she comes to me and it was not long after I had my first period and she's like oh you're a woman now so you know you should cover you should cover up everything and I, at that point I was already wearing a giant hijab so my um hijab which is just like the headscarf um, actually it was down to my knees already at that point. Like I was wearing a big scarf and everything like that. But she was like, nope, you, you should wear the niqab as well. <laughs> um, did you did you go out a lot? I mean, you weren't going to school, but if you went out, what was it, the experience like wearing uh, niqab? Well, when I, first, when I first put it on, we were living in a massive Muslim area. Um, and people just kind of like, like there's a lot of, um, you know, South Asians there and a lot of South Asians in, um, Melbourne, uh, Australia and Brisbane, Australia and like all those sort of places. They, they, a lot of them do wear the niqab. So I wasn't kind of out of place. Um, it was more when we moved to a different area of town is where I kind of started to notice it. And I think also I was young and like 12 year olds don't notice what other people are saying or like doing. Um, but I definitely noticed a difference when I returned from living overseas and when I came back to Australia. It's when I definitely noticed the stares, uh, the abuse, and that sort of stuff that comes with wearing something like a niqab. Did Did you have um, friends since you were going to school? No. No, no. I mean, you didn't go to Madras. Did you have Muslim friends? Non Muslim no, friends? No, no, no. I, I didn't have any friends. You didn't have any I was friends. Lonely. No. Um, at one point, my mum, you know, she organized like these like little get togethers at the local mosque. But when she saw that I was uh, becoming corrupted by the girls that attended there, she pulled me out. By corrupted meaning, oh, can I please take the niqab off? Well, where should we go from here? What, 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 what else was? Uh... Oh, here's well, a question. Well, I went to Somalia. <laughs> well, before we get there, um. Was your mother more hardline than your father? Yes. And a lot of people think that's really strange. I actually when I, say I, that. I don't think that's strange. Um I probably would have thought that uh a long time ago, but now I'm I I almost always I almost assume the mothers are more hardline. 
I always ask that, but I, I know just out of asking that question a lot that it's usually the mothers who get more fundamentalist into Islam than the yeah. fathers, which, which people, it's not everyone's um, presumption because yeah. everyone sees Islam as a patriarchal uh, sexist religion, which it is. But they think because of that, you're automatic, like women are going to have an automatic rejection to Islam. And they, yeah. if they're in it, they must be kind of prisoners to it. They don't want to be in it. They don't want to be doing those things. But it, this is that's the function of, of religion is to indoctrinate people. It's to love your own chains. Yeah. Right. I've always kind of um, I have this theory that, OK, so a lot of the time uh, Muslim fathers are, are physically violent a lot of the time. Yeah. I experienced it, and many of my ex-Muslim friends have experienced you know, the physical violence that comes with having a Muslim father. Um, but with the Muslim mothers, they tend to be a lot more emotionally damaging and violent towards you and, and mentally violent. So it's a lot of, like, you know, just picking on you and threatening you and forcing you. And I think it has to do something, um, and my theory, square for my theory is that Muslim women have no control over their husbands or anything outside of their house. The one thing they do have control over is their children. And so they vent out all of their frustration at them from that they have themselves out onto their kids. And that's why it's the mothers that force a lot of, uh, like, you know, like the modesty culture and all that sort of stuff on their daughters. And it could be because, you know, their dads might beat them if they don't wear it. But instead of them standing up to their husbands because they're told that they can't stand up to their husbands they kind of just be like just take the easy way out and like force it on their daughters as well hmm. well that's my theory do you have any thoughts as to why women might be more prone to being more fundamentalist in a religion that in so many ways is probably a lot more sexist and limiting towards women um I think it could be because if they be it takes a very strong person, and I'm not tooting my own horn, I'm, I'm saying this across the board, it doesn't matter if you leave a religion or not, but for you to stand up and go against everything you've been taught and everything that's been pushed into your mind, it takes a lot of energy and time and focus, and it takes a lot from you as a person to question everything. And I feel like Sadly, a lot of the world, and I'm not even, like, again, like, I'm not just talking religion, I'm just talking everything in general, is a lot of people would rather take the easy way out when it comes to things. And, you know, I think there's a variety of factors that could contribute why women in patriarchal societies perpetrate violence against other women. Like, you'd think you'd be all together and we're all one and let's fight against the man. But unfortunately, like, I don't really see that happening. It's, um like, um. You know, I, I used to have this, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This I was misinformed and I had this, like, false idea that, you know, like FGM, for example, I thought it was the men that pushed it on and the men are the ones that wanted it. But it wasn't until I was in Somalia where I actually noticed it was the women pushing FGM on other women. You know, and I couldn't understand that because it's, horrific and the pain and the agony that these women are going through it's like why would you want to force your daughters or your nieces or your cousins or your sisters or whatnot why would you want to force them to go through the same pain is it because you've gone through that and they just have to do it as well or is it just because of the culture and you're 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 not strong enough to stand up against it 
I don't, it's really, I, I find those sort of things fascinating as well. It's like, why do people convert to Islam? Why do people beat their kids? Why do, like, you know, when if you look at even situations of domestic violence, it's why do mothers stay silent when their um, partners, are, you know, hurt their children? Like, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's, I don't know, maybe women are used to kind of fall back onto this, victimhood maybe i don't know that's probably going to get some really angry by saying that um what was your experience like in in somalia Uh, what age did you travel there i was there twice so the Mm. first time i went i was 13 14 and the second time i went i was 16 17 um both times i was there for about six to nine months so practically lived there um they have faster internet than australia (laughs) <laughs> if mm. I can tell you that. Um, it was actually, it's really, really fascinating. But living in a Muslim country, I was more free than I was living in a, a non-Muslim country. And the reason why I'm going to say that is because everybody in the country is Muslim. So my parents kind of released the chokehold on me just a little bit so I could, like, go out of the house and I could go to, my like, my aunties and I could go to like the shops and I could go to like wherever I wanted, but there was no question. So long as I was home before, you know, like the night prayers, they didn't care. And it was like, it was like in Somalia, like a hundred percent Muslim country, a country where they, you know, apostasy is a crime. Like they kill you. Like that's where I discovered music. That's where I discovered Beyonce (laughs) (laughs) and Britney Spears was when I was in Somalia. Um, because when you're in Australia, you weren't allowed to listen to music at home? Yeah, I wasn't allowed. No, I wasn't allowed. Were, were you sure. disconnected completely? No television, no movies, no music? So we no music was allowed. Um, television, it kind of came and, like it came and went like whenever we had television. Um, my parents always had to like verify what we were watching. And like I remember um, even when we were on the plane flying to – uh, Somalia and my dad was sitting next to me and there was like this like a kissing scene like not and not even like one of those like dramatic intense like oh my god we know where this is going scenes it was just like a, like, you know, like a simple kiss like you know like it was like a, some teenage movie I was watching and he literally reached over and he grabbed my chin and turned it away so I made sure I wasn't watching it like they were very strict on wait what, how like, old are you at that was, point I was like 14 I think or 15 like I was a teenager as well like he was like Haram, you can't see this you couldn't see a kiss <laughs> at that age kiss oh, I never saw my parents kiss ever like I don't even know how they created the many children that they have <laughs> you know it's it's funny you know? I just re- I just read a book by uh, a Saudi woman named Manal al-Sharif she wrote a book called Daring to Drive she's she protested uh, the uh, the ban on driving in saudi arabia um now she lives in the west um i forget where she lives in the west but she's she she lived her whole life in saudi arabia but i was reading all the limitations she grew up with and i was thinking to myself how alien that world sounds to me but people don't really imagine that there are people who are almost living like that in a western country and you were much, yeah. And I and I, you're not the first person I talked to who, who's lived in 
Western English speaking country people from Canada or the United States. But it's always fascinating to me that there's a person, for example, in your case, like in Australia, who's in a niqab, who, who who's not going outside, basically not going to school, not listening to music, not watching movies. It's a very strange thing, especially to me, since I not just that I didn't have those limitations, but I studied film in university. So to me, movies was my life. Um, mm. I, I just couldn't imagine um, my life w- without those things. And I think most people can't. Yeah. I mean, most people I grew up with, you know, they're fanat- they were fanatical about something. If it wasn't movies, you know, music or or something. So it's just what what kept you busy? What, what was your what was your passion uh, growing up in, in an atmosphere like that? Um, I'd like to state that I am an amazing gamer. I can play Commander Conquer's General Zero Hour very, very quickly and very well. <laughs> um, Age of Empires also. I'm absolutely fabulous at playing Age of Empires because that's what I used to pass time. Um, and I read. I read so much. And we're talking like... We're not talking like, you know, like five years ago. Like we're talking at a time where like not everybody had a mobile phone. Like, like, well, granted, I didn't get a mobile phone until like 2011. Um, but like it was a time where you, you couldn't just like, you know, grab on your phone or just jump on the computer and find something. Like, you know, YouTube didn't exist. Well, it did, but it wasn't really there. But like, you know, none of these sort of things were like around. So, um I mean, even even when there was mobile phones, we had the flip phones for a long time. You couldn't read on those. Especially not articles exactly. or books or anything like that. Now, like ebooks, no. yeah, yeah. I don't I, like. I I don't know in, what at what point. Like, I forget around what year, but it wasn't like that long ago that reading, for example, like articles or books on your phone became practical. That I mean, for the longest time, even when you had cell phones and internet, it that wasn't something you could really do. What, what books did you read though? Oh, encyclopedias. Okay, everything. I read the back of a freaking toilet cleaner. I would read anything and everything. I mean, given that I lived in an Islamic household, I read the entire Quran multiple times. I read um, all the hadith, so the different kinds of hadith, hadith books out there. So Bulug al-Marah, Sahih al-Bukhari, Riyadh al-Salihin, Sahih Muslim. These are just names of uh, books. I read um, The Sealed Nectar, which is the story of Muhammad's entire life. I read Tafsir ibn Kathir, which is just um, – Tafsir ibn Kathir is um, a guy named ibn Kathir who interpreted in, interpreted the Qur'an using hadith. Like, I just read so much. And it's contributed to the fact that I'm an amazingly fast reader. <laughs> um, eventually, um, after the second time of being in Somalia um, – when we came back to Australia, I managed to like kind of convince my parents to let me go to a library because I'm like, what haram can I do in a library? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I started borrowing books, but the way I had to do it was I kind of had to be like, I had to like convince my mom, I'm like, oh, I'll go to the shops and I'll buy like the groceries. And then the library was always next to the shop. So I'd go to the library and I'd pick a few novels and I'd read them. And the other thing that helped me, and I swear this was probably like what saved me a lot, was I used to write. I used to write stories after stories, like fantasy worlds, like these massive, expansive worlds that um, I could escape in myself and you know imagine that I was one of these characters so I could, didn't have to face the reality of my existence. So you and that wrote... Sounds- Really you wrote fantasy and you played video games. So 
Islam made you into a massive nerd. <laughs> it did. When I was playing video games, it was for really limited, uh, really limited amount of time. Also, I'm really handy. So because my um, so my stepdad is a uh, electrical engineer, and so I um, you know, he was like, he really loves science. So he like he'd bring her, he'd go to, like the Sunday market. And he'd bring home like these like little electrical grids, so you could like you know circuits and stuff. So like you could build your own circuits and turn lights on. Like I can build a computer now. Like I'm I'm quite proud of myself. So I I found things in um with my siblings and that we spent a lot of time in the backyard and we created these like massive like like you know like kids do they play like create fantasy games. So like man, we were like all out. Like we were like like I was Magneto's daughter and my brother was like Wolverine's son and we hated each other and <laughs> yeah we, we we created our own world and like I said before I feel like it's it a bit depressive because in a sense that that's what we had to do to well that's what I had to do to, to kind of survive my existence there really that sounds a bit of, of a contradiction to me the the fact that you say that you that your father your stepfather was so into science and he he even brought it into the house, but the family at the same time was so hardline religious. Like, how did they reconcile those two things? Because there's this wonderful thing called stupid smart people. <laughs> stupid smart people? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, like, like okay. Um, I always use my brother as an example. My brother's an absolute, like, one of my brothers. He's an absolute genius. Like, you know, when he was, like, 12 years old, he was doing, like, you know, um, the highest level of physics he could for a high school student, like chemistry and maths and genius kid, right? Absolutely genius. And, but he's freaking stupid. <laughs> like he's also like, he has absolutely no concept of like how the real world works. And mm -hmm. I feel like the same thing. I mean, America has a politician who is, believes in God, but he's like, uh, he can literally like drill into your skull and fix any problems that's going on in your brain, but he believes in a God. I, I just feel like, some some people can some people make it work and just ignore it. They ignore all their doubts and their issues and, and the questions that they have about it. Hmm. That's. Uh, did you see any? Did you feel any contradictions at the time? Like you know, you know that your father is bringing home things to build circuits, but then you're wearing an an niqab and you're getting this fundamentalist education. Did you see? But I didn't know it was a fundamentalist. Remember, I didn't know it was because by that time I reached that point, I hadn't been exposed to other people. Like I knew it was extreme. I knew, but the, the, the thing is as well is in the Muslim community, when you're at that level of extreme or piety, um, people speak about you in hushed tones. Oh, did you see sister? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and when people would find out, like my mum would be like, oh, this is my daughter, Nali. She's, uh, and people are like, oh, mashallah, it's so nice to meet you. Oh, you're so cute. Blah, blah. Oh, how old are you? Oh, I'm, I'm 14. Mashallah, she's 14 and wearing a niqab. Oh, my God, you must be so proud of her. So it's kind of, you get put in this, uh, piety is a, it's an amazing thing in, in, in any religious community, I think, and you get kind of put on a pedestal. And so I was constantly receiving these, like, things of validation. But by the time I hit, you know, like, my, um, mid-teens I'd start to like really like question them and I started noticing like hypocrisy in these things so you know I went to Somalia and I'm seeing like the sheikh's daughters like sheikhs of the entire country's daughters like listen to music and like chat with boys and I was I started bringing all these conflictions and obviously when you're in your teenage years that's when you start questioning things and 
I, I've, I've kind of had this theory that when it, when you're a uh, Muslim teenager and you start questioning things, one of two things happens. What the one is, you leave Islam and you just like you're like that. This sort of shit doesn't make any sense. I'm gonna leave. The other one is you you become more religious, and mm. like I've definitely seen it with uh, people I know because despite my parents keeping me out of the community, um, by the time I hit like my mid to late teens. I was kind of, they couldn't keep me locked up inside because everyone would be like, oh, where's Molly? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I kind of slowly started getting into the community and just seeing kind of all these discrepancies. And obviously all that time I spent reading all the Quran and everything and it, it kind of backfired on my parents because my dad was always like, oh, you know, question things. Like, you know, when you're teaching a science and stuff, you'd be like, oh, why does this happen? And why, 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 why? Always asking why. And then, but I couldn't ask why for anything religious. It's like, oh, this is the way it is. You can't question Allah. It's a sin to question Allah. This is how it is. You can't change it. It's not as perfect. Like, I, I, I'll happily admit that I even fell into that whole, like, oh, you know, the West is trying to, like, lie about Islam and, you know, because that's what I've been taught. And when you don't have so any of those outside influences, you, you, you don't think beyond the little bubble that you're growing up in. And eventually speaking to other people and experiencing other things and other Muslims and other other Islamic ideas is ironically enough, which is what made me start questioning. And then I I began to feel like I was suffocating. So that's when I really started being like, I kind of, I don't want to believe, but I have to kind of act like I want to believe because I don't want my parents to basically hurt me. Hurt you how? Because they were physically violent. I already said that before. They oh, like sure. to like, yeah. Yeah. Muslim parents, anything, any sign of disrespect results in a smack. <laughs> I yeah. like to smack, supposedly. Yeah. Um, and I didn't. So I was kind of indifferent to God and all those things. I was just like, oh, I know mm-hmm. where it's like how I was raised. It's all I know. I don't know anything else. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I, over time, my family kind of started becoming a little bit. I want to say less strict, but they kind of, they were still very strictly religious, but they kind of started loosening some things. So, like, we, we got a TV in the house, but obviously my parents still, it wasn't connected to anything. And we just had a TV, and then it was, like, allocated, um, like, uh, lectures we could watch or allocated kids' movies we could watch, like Sinbad. Oh, my God, I can never watch The Adventures of Sinbad ever again in my life because I swear my cousins put that on repeat for, like, 30 times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so it wasn't until my sister, um, passed away is when I realized that I was an atheist and I was like, fuck, God's not real. God sucks if he is. <laughs> so, yeah. what, could you explain the logic to that a little bit deeper? Like, of course. So, 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 um, um, but also on how much of a believer were you prior to that? Oh, uh, no, see, I never really... I was never someone who feared Allah. I think that's the best way because I've met ex-Muslims who feared Allah and they prayed to God to help guide them and mm-hmm. make all these terrible thoughts. I was never like that. I was like, I have to kind of obey because my parents are going to beat the shit out of me if I like take any carb off or if I don't pray or if I talk to a boy or if I do any of that. I'm going to lose my little limited freedoms that they were. And so the reason why is I was kind of just like eh about it all. You know, like that's how I am. I'm a very eh person. And um, 
I remember it was when my sister um, passed away and I was I was obviously with her and I because I, I was the one that found her and um, you know I was holding her body and I remember going it, it's just like those some people have it's a graduation over time where they start like oh science and reason and God's not real and blah 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 with and then other people have like this just like moment where it's just like no nah, it's not and I had just I had a moment and I remember I was holding my sister and I just went if God is real I don't want to have anything to do with him because he's taken my little sister my baby sister away from me an innocent someone who has done nothing wrong in this world yet so many terrible people exist and a lot of um religious people will say oh but you know it's god's will and blah blah but no no and i was and then i started kind of like getting all this sort of like thoughts rushing through my mind at that time and i was like no there's no such thing as god this um this is life and life fucking sucks and terrible shit happens and that was my moment where when i was like no god's not real and then I had to pretend for four years <laughs> before I left home. So you were you were an atheist in a niqab. Oh yes, I was. What what was that like? I mean, you, I imagine you're also you're doing your prayers and all that. I mean, what is it like, especially during the time being an an atheist, knowing this is completely false, and to live like well, that? Um. There's a reason why I left home at 19 with no money, no clothes, and nothing. <laughs> um, I was like, I'll, I'll be able to get through this. So what I actually started doing was I'm like, I want to be more free. I need to get out of the house. So I started using all the Islamic texts and everything they use and listening to Islamic lectures and stuff. And I started using trying to use Islam against my parents to convince them to give me what I wanted. It didn't work, but I was trying. Um, I was trying to find anything. So at that point I was like, well, I don't believe in Allah. I don't believe in God, but maybe I can still kind of like live in this kind of like Islamic environment if I can make it comfortable for myself. And it doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. I just like put that out there right now. It doesn't work like that. Um, so... I don't know, it just was kind of like me just like slowly trying to chip away at my parents and trying to get more um, freedom. So I met this awesome girl and she was heavily involved in the Islamic community, like the council and stuff. And she's like, oh, there's Islamic lecture coming on. Do you want to volunteer and help at it? And I was like, oh, have help my parents. But what I do, so I'd ask my parents and how I convinced, because they were like, no, we don't know these chefs. We don't know what you're going to get exposed to. You're not going to go, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, but they're missing. <laughs> <laughs> and I go so um I went to the first night and then I came home and I got into a huge fight with my parents because I was um I was defending one of my siblings because they were like saying something I think it was one of my brothers and they're like why haven't you grown your beard why do you keep shaving it's horrible for you to shave your beard like that's how far my parents went and um I was like oh <laughs> the chef said that if you push the youth, they'll leave Islam, <laughs> even though, like, I don't do that. <laughs> but I was just like, if you push the youth, and then my, the, the next morning my parents are like, oh, you can't go, you're not allowed to go because they're teaching you bad ideas because, you know, my parents' version of Islam was, like, the best version of Islam. 
And um, yeah, so it was just kind of like this graduation of me like trying to get a lot more independence. Um, I managed to get into university. So like all my years of reading encyclopedias and books and everything I could get my hand on um, aided me in getting into university. I had to write a um, an essay, an entrance exam, and I completed and I got into university and I was doing this degree. But um, at the same time, my parents were, while well, I was trying to disagree, my parents were putting a lot of pressure on me to get married because, oh, my God, how dare I be a 17-year-old girl and not married? <laughs> that, you're, that was pretty old already to not be married. Oh, no, I was like an old maid. Like, I was, like, rusting and everything. <laughs> At 17? At 17? Yep. What, what age would have they liked you to get married? Well, my mom had considered um, taking, like, betrothals or engagements from when I was 15. 15? Yes. Would have that been legal in Australia? Um, Depending on... Um, well, not really. But um, in Australia, you can get married with consent of the parents uh, at, at sixteen, with the consent of the parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, funnily enough, I pretty much reached this point in my thing where I was like, I need to get married to get out of this family. <laughs> and um, so I was like, I'm gonna find the most non-religious, non-practicing Muslim guy out there. Now, unfortunately, not many of them are lining up to marry a chef's Maccabi daughter. Like, it's just not a thing. They don't want to do that. <laughs> Why not? What, I mean, what's the what's the issue there? Is that they don't know what you look like? Is is what's, what's uh, the No, no. I think it's just, like, they're not, they're not like, the kind of men who don't want, like, the, the kind of guys that grew up Western. Yeah, I was looking for a Western-raised guy who was pretty much not Muslim. Mm-hmm. But, they're not going to turn around and be like, oh, they're not going to go out of the way to find this Maccabi who's like, they would make the assumption is very religious and very, um, you know, Islamic. Well, they're not going to want to marry a girl like that. You know, the only men that were lining up to marry me were like 25, 30 year old sheikhs and Islamic teachers and Quran teachers. Those were the only men lining up to marry me. And your parents probably would have liked for you to marry a guy like that? Oh, of course. Ugh. I remember uh, <laughs> I remember this um, one guy came up to my dad at the mosque and he was like, oh, I heard you've got a daughter. She's ready for marriage. Um, I've got my cousin. He's looking to get married. He's your man. My dad's like, oh, yeah, she'll come over to the house. Like, we're just talking about selling some fish. Like, it was just like so casual. And um, half the time I didn't even know why these guys were in the house. I didn't really care. Um but yeah, and then my mum was like, "Oh, I really like this boy. You know, he's 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 a he's a hafiz. He knows the entire Quran off by heart. He studied at Medina University. He'll be great for you." And I was like, "Oh, okay, cool. What does he do for work?" Oh, he teaches uh, Quran classes. And I'm like, "Okay, you want me to marry somebody who doesn't have a real job?" Okay. She's like, "Oh, but think of the akhira. Think of the hereafter." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um. So, so, can you talk about leaving home? What was that? Yeah. Process. Yeah. Okay. So, I always have this disclaimer before I begin the process of leaving home. Don't try this at home. Um. So, eventually, I had managed to kind of make some non-Muslim friends that I've met. Um. And I've kind of become friends with them, but like I had to like delete the numbers out of my phone and stuff like that because my parents would go through my phone and call anybody they didn't know and be like, "How do you know our daughter?" And um, 
so this non-Muslim friends, and I was seeing how her life was like not Islamic. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, she wasn't like burning in hell and her life wasn't terrible because she wasn't on the straight path. And so I kind of made friends you know, with her and a few of her friends. And um, I was experiencing this. And they and they, I was still in a bar. They'd never seen me without a nabab on or anything like that. And um, they treated me like a human as well. Like I wasn't this like precious diamond that had to be hidden away or how dare you touch her or anything like that. It was mm-hmm. I was a um, – they treated me like a human being. And I think that's kind of was what gave me the courage to kind of like maybe I could – be like this maybe I could leave but when I actually left I, I hadn't made like any plans I was kind of like you know it was a fantasy for me it's like you know like the girl that believes in a prince I was I believe in freedom um <laughs> you know and so eventually what happened was so I'm sitting and I'm doing online university I'm you know just doing the pressures of family and to get married and then obviously because my parents obviously homeschool their kids so it was all my siblings as well that I was having to like look after and help with and it was that was four years of that kind of stuff that I was enduring and it started chipping away at me and you know I started to feel empty and I felt like I was about to explode so what ended up happening is I developed this sort of coping mechanism where I didn't show any emotion so I didn't smile I didn't I didn't laugh. I didn't react. Um, I learned how to control my face so that if, you know, my parents said something about Islam, I wouldn't, like, kind of give away that I don't agree with them. And I became very stone-like, very hollow. Like, I was, like, basically gargoyle. Like, I, I had no emotions, nothing. I just completely shut myself off from every sort of feeling. And I was just going through the motions every day and just on repeat constantly every day, repeating, 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 waking up in the morning and praying and praying more and then doing this and doing that. And it, it wears you down, even though I was trying to, like, protect myself by wearing this, like, armour. It's a chipping at me. And uh, my dad came home from the mosque and it was after Isha prayer, which is, like, the last prayer. And in Australia, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same in the rest of the world, but, um, okay, so if everyone's not aware, Muslims – according to this, the location of the sun or where the sun is in the, in the sky. Um, and Isha prayer is like the latest one. So um, in summer, Isha prayer is quite late in Australia. It's like 10 p.m. or something. And so he's come home and I can't remember. I must have, I must have done something wrong. I can't remember exactly what it was because um, it's pretty much a blur. And they're like, give us your phone, give us your laptop. You're, you're never allowed to leave the house again, blah, 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 blah. And I, I remember I, I turned around and I went to walk to my bedroom, towards my bedroom and just something as me in me, as I picked up my phone, something in me just kind of snapped. And I remember having this thought where if I don't leave, I'm going to kill myself because I cannot live like this anymore. So I grabbed, I had my phone in my hand. I grabbed my charger, never leave your home without a charger. <laughs> and I um, grabbed my purse. So I grabbed my wallet and had my, you know, my my um my license or my L's because I needed it for, to get a passport. So I had my L's in there. I had what's you know, that? Um, Your L's? Uh, so a learner permit. Okay. Like when you learn to drive a car, you have your L's. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
So I had like my L license and I had my, God, what else did I have in it? I don't think I really had much in it actually. Um, Cause I didn't have a bank card. I didn't have like a, a government card. I didn't have like a um, healthcare card. Like I didn't have any of that sort of stuff. I just had like a license. I don't even know why I bothered having a purse. Uh, <laughs> so I remember I had that in my hand and I walked to the front door and I put my shoes on and my dad's like, where are you going? And I was like, fuck you and fuck you, God. And then I ran out the door. I like, I just ran. (laughs) Did you really do that? I did. And I fucking, I ran. It was the first time I ever swore in my life. I did not see that coming. I thought you were going to be like, oh, I'm just going to the corner or something like that. You went out in style. Wow. I did. Hence why I put the disclaimer at the beginning with like, don't try this at home. Wow. Um, so wait, yeah, wait, did you do this in niqab? No, I didn't. I walked out with like, uh, just like a skirt and a shirt. I like didn't have a hijab on, didn't have the niqab on. I had my phone and my purse. I put my runners on, like my sneakers on. Yeah. And I said, fuck you and fuck your God. And then I just ran out the front door. And okay. I think I like, I, I have never run as far or as fast as I did that night. <laughs> um, I ran through, like, uh, we lived in some, like, wetlands and, like, bushlands. So I, like, ran through this bushlands because I knew that if they wanted to come after me with a car, they can't go through the bushlands because there's no roads. And so I'm, like, running and running and running, and then I ended up just probably about, like, six or seven Ks away from my house. And I, I called my non-Muslim friend, and I was like, hi! Um, so, like, I left home and I have nowhere to go and she's like come stay with me so I was lucky in that sense that I had uh, a good friend in her and but the problem was I had to get to where she was and I didn't have like a money and I didn't have a um a, a card like a transport card I didn't have any of that so she was like oh cool this friend so I called another friend I'm like hey I left home can you come pick me up and um he was like uh okay <laughs> none of these people um, so are muslim who you're calling no 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 no. Right. they're all um never muslim or non-muslim okay and so he comes in he picks me up and he's like just like keep walking like you know and then my parents were like calling me and they're like texting me like we know where you are we're going to find you blah 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 and they're like calling and i was just like i'm not gonna do with this and then um you know he my friend rocked up and he picks me up and we start driving, like, we know where your car you're in, we're following you. And then I was like, oh, my God, I've got so much anxiety, I'm going to die. Um, and then I just turned my phone off and uh, he drove me to the girl's house and that was pretty much it. Like, that's literally what I did. That's how I left. Don't recommend it unless you absolutely have no choice. How did you feel? Were you, I mean, were you scared? Were you happy? Were, like, what, what was going on in your head? Um... At that time, obviously, adrenaline is rushing through you. Um, And all I knew is I needed to get away. I needed to get away. I needed to get somewhere safe. And I turned my phone off. I completely turned my phone off. And I just kind of sat in the house and I was like, what do I do? Oh, my Lord. I was the most socially awkward human being on earth. Like, it's embarrassing. Like, I'm ashamed of myself. (laughs) Because they were like, like, I don't know how to, like, I don't know how to interact with boys. Like, I didn't know how to do it. So, like, in this house, there was, like, four boys, three boys or four boys. And they were, like, teenagers. And they were all Australian. Like, they're not just, like, oh, they're a giant. Like, they were, like, Aussie. Like, we're talking, like, Aussie Aussies. 
And I've never experienced at that time. I never experienced Australians. They're like they're like just chilling and they're like they're like opening up alcohol and there's like music blasting. And I was just like, what the hell? It's like I'd gone into another dimension or another world. It was it was so foreign to me that people actually live like this. <laughs> yeah, and um. But did you did you feel much- like embracing it? Like, did it did it seem like good to you, or like how how? Honestly, yeah. it, it didn't hit me until a few months after I left home. Okay. Um, because obviously when I was home, I was like, well, I need to survive. I need to figure out what to do. So pretty much, right. I left home. Um, and it was like a Friday night, so obviously I couldn't go to any government assistance on the weekends because they're not open. So Monday I went to the Centrelink, that's who we call them, that's our government assistance organization, and I went there and I'm like, oh, I'd like to apply for government assistance. Like I, I'm homeless, I don't have like support, I have no money, and they're like, okay, cool, apply for it. And my parents made it so hard. I basically had to get emancipated from them. So even though I was a 19-year-old woman in, in Australia, uh, you're not your if you want your government assistance and you're not living at home it's still dictated by what your parents make until you're 24 years old unless you become emancipated from them so because my um dad earned so much money I wasn't eligible for anything like I couldn't get any government assistance and um so I went about months without any money and I I was like, okay, well, next, I'm like, well, okay, they're not going to need government assistance. I'm going to put that on the back burner. I'm just going to have to find a job. And so I found like, the worst possible job you can on earth. It was business to business sales. I was an annoying person that walked in and be like, hi, my name's Nelly. Were you interested in purchasing any of these mobile phones today? <laughs> <laughs> um, worst job ever. And um, yeah, it didn't hit me until about six months later. And because at the time I was constantly surrounded by people and I was having all these new experiences, like I went to. Um, uh, like you know, I went to a McDonald's for the first time, and I watched a movie for the like. I actually went to a cinemas for the first time, and I, you know, I did was doing all these like. I it took me. I didn't even like go jump straight into alcohol or drugs or bacon or anything like that. I was like experiencing things that so many other people take like advantage, like uh, take um. They're not. They're not great. They take for granted. Yes, yes, that's what I was looking for. Like (laughs) music. Music is like one of my favorite things like I will listen to any sort of any sort of music like even now I would listen to any kind of music and I love music and I love rhythm and I I I um you know it's part of what I do on my work it's you know when I in one of the fields that I was working in like I was you know doing choreography and uh, to music and stuff and I absolutely love it and it was it's I don't sometimes I feel like people don't unless you are in the music industry I feel like some people don't truly understand the power that music has and it was oh yeah I could talk about music all day um I can't play any instruments because that's haram and I haven't learned to but um I was just so engaged in like learning how to like interact with people and then oh I had my first party that was an experience I saw people throwing up and laughing and then throwing up again and I was just like wow (laughs) people live like this um yeah so I, I, and it wasn't until I was um, – so my friend had gone to see her boyfriend and there was no one in the home. And I, I remember I was sitting in the bedroom and then just out of nowhere it just hit me. Like it was like, holy fuck, I'm actually free. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm free. What? 
what is this? What do I do with my life? And then I had a mental breakdown. I started crying and bawling my eyes. And I'm like, I'm so lonely. No one loves me. No one understands me. <laughs> you know? I mean, it must have been very hard to to relate to people by, by what you're saying. Oh. It, it must have been oh. to interact with people. And they're talking, like, because every, everyone has knowledge of the world prior to talk like you know you can talk about music yeah. you can talk about movies you can talk about you know when you meet a stranger or a friend or anyone there's things you can talk about about just common culture and it sounded like you were so disconnected like unless they were talking about verses in the quran you you didn't have really <laughs> yeah. a means of interacting with people so even if you were free let's say outside of your parents home and their control it, i guess you still were not free in the sense that you they you grew up in an environment that created a disconnection from greater culture so you were never like oh. you, especially at, i guess at first and later i now you're probably that's pro you've probably overcome that but in this early time that must have been incredibly difficult oh of course someone mentioned to me like in sync and i looked at us so confused i'm like what's in sync like what do you want to be in sync i don't understand she's like oh the boy band have you not heard of them? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> like that was my reaction for like the first two years after I left home. Was like, um, well, what, what, wait, what, what would you do? Let me tell you my life story. So that, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> do you, did you feel bad about telling your, your life story? Like, I, I don't know for like embarrassment or like it, people might think it's weird and it, like you would skip over it and try to make an excuse. Or would you tell people your story? Um, so, so uh, when my mom actually converted to Islam, she changed our names from Western ones to Arabic ones. So okay. I had an Arabic name. I had an Arabic first and last name. And so obviously it confused people because I am I'm white, blue eyes, and I like I speak English. Like I don't sound foreign, even though apparently I do have an accent. Um, and like they'd look at me and be like, what? is this your name? I'm like, yep. They're like, oh, what is it? Is it like Russian? Is it like Yugoslav? And I'm like, no, it's Arabic. They're like, oh, okay. Why? And then I'd kind of be like, I kind of did this whole thing like, oh, I was raised Muslim, but now I'm not. And then if they kind of questioned more, then I'd, I'd talk to them about it. Um, I had severe anxiety with Muslims though, like because of uh, my name and like my last name, I was my parents were quite prominent in the community, so people knew who I was. Like there've been times where I've been cornered by Muslims. Even now, I still get cornered by them saying, "Oh, you've disappointed your family," and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> What's new? Um, I'm such a disappointment that I have a 75k job a year, and I have like you know all these amazing things that I've had these amazing. I'm I'm the disappointment. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's been like kind of this thing where yeah, I had no idea. I had like pop culture references. I didn't understand what they were. I didn't understand well what so many things were. I was socially. My partner likes to say he's like you were socially retarded. I was though. Like let's be real. I didn't know how to function in society. I didn't know how to. Well, that's actually. Write a that, I mean, or... a lot of people think. I mean, obviously, for good reasons, people think the term that term retarded is offensive. But in your case, it's like if you you could say it's very accurate in sense because to retard is to yeah. hold someone back, 
to hold back, yeah. to retard their education, for example. So you were socially held back and culturally yeah. held back. So it's a very accurate term, actually, in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of things. Like, I, I didn't know. And I had to learn a lot. And I had to learn it so fast. Like, I had to learn how to uh, catch it, like, do a connecting trains in the middle of the city. I had to learn how to, like, open a bank account. I had to learn how to get a phone plan. Like, I had to learn how to do so many things. And it wasn't easy because I didn't have – I had one piece of ID, which was me in a niqab. <laughs> so it was kind of, like, really confusing. Um, Wait, yeah, you're, you're it, it in was, your niqab in your ID? Well, no. So in my license picture, I had, like, there was me. And, like, my, you can see my face because in Australia, obviously, you have to be face showing. But my niqab is flipped up, so you can see that I've got a niqab. And, like, I'm wearing a hijab and everything in my, like, well, not wow. now, but in my license picture I was. And you can understand how confusing it was when, like, I'm, like, going into, like, uh, uh, like a, a, a bottle of, um, sorry, uh, uh, an alcohol shop uh -huh. um, and, like, bringing and showing my ID <laughs> with, like, a hijab on. It was just, like, really fucking strange and... Yeah, but um, I can I, you you get you learn, and I think in some ways I think it was so good that I learned everything so fast, and I think it and regardless of like you know pop culture references, how to survive in life generally, and that I think it's given me a deeper appreciation for things that so many people take for granted. When you interact with people, is there a lot of culture in Australia to? hold up Islam as this misunderstood progressive thing that just racists don't appreciate? Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? The whole left thing where it's just yeah, like Islam is a feminist yeah. religion. Do you have a lot of that in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in uh, Australia? We don't have, like, we don't have, like, um, like, from my knowledge, granted, I don't watch TV because it's just for shit, really. Um, but from my knowledge, we don't have, like, people from, like, the left as in non-Muslims going on national television and screaming that Islam is feminist. Um, I have encountered it in my work environment. I have a co-worker who's born again, and she was saying some stuff about Islam, and normally I kind of just, I'm like, I'm at my work, I don't know. And she just kept saying this stuff, and I just kind of, like, snapped it at her. She's like, oh, but it's so, like, amazing, and it's this and it's that. I'm like, then why don't you go join a misogynistic religion? And I was, like, so angry at it. And um, there's definitely a lot of things, but when I tell my story to people like all, all my co-workers know about it they um they know that I speak about explosive stuff and like my work knows about it they just say don't put your real name on it um a lot of them are kind of like horrified like I'm gonna go we didn't know this happens in Australia and that's why I speak do what I speak up because it doesn't ha people don't know it happens in Australia people didn't know that I was a 14 year old girl in the club and that I was walking down the street no one knew that I was being deprived of an education like nobody knew anything about me they just assumed that I was another girl fresh off a boat who didn't speak English and wanted to walk around in a giant black tent all day like that's what they assumed and well, well people it's I mean hearing your story and hearing other stories I've heard there's just no way people are going to know because, like you said, you're isolated from the world. You're just at home all the time. You don't have non-Muslim friends. If you do go out, you're in a niqab. So people, you know, they, they don't know the age of the person under that. And no, then, they don't. And then I, I imagine, like you were saying, like your parents wanted you to get married 
very young and let's say if like in in most of the cases they if they are married very young they're you know we're talking about a teenage girl who goes from the home with the parents to the home with a much older man as a wife and again as she goes out she's in a cop so there's no way that people are just gonna know what's going on right if 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 you married a guy who was 40 or 50 and you're a 15 year old girl well if you go out with him as husband and wife you're in a niqab if people if people saw that relationship without the niqab on they think that's that's fucking weird right it's like this yeah. is pedophilia you have the niqab See, on they don't know what age you are yeah this is why i'm a massive massive advocate for niqab or pulse bands i mm-hmm. i don't think they should be there and I, I know there's been this argument where it's like, oh, but if you ban it, it's just going to force women to stay in their homes. And I'm like, oh, it might for a few, but you can keep your eyes on those few people, like if their families are like that. But I don't accept the niqab. I don't think there's any point. Like right. I, I turned around and I said, okay, so it's okay for them to force women to stay at home. Like you're not seeing how wrong it is in your logic by saying, oh, but if we ban the niqab, new women aren't going to be allowed to leave their home. You do understand what you just said. They won't be allowed to leave their home. That's the whole point. We don't want them. We don't want them to not be allowed. We want them to be able to choose. And so I, like, I don't have it like a hijab, whatever. I don't give a fuck about a hijab. You know, if you want to wear it, you want to wear it. It's the same thing if you want to wear a bikini. I don't really care if you want to wear a bikini. At the end of the day, it's a piece of fucking cloth. It does nothing for you. It doesn't protect you from anything. It's not some magical cloth that's going to stop all men from waving. It's not a chastity belt. It does nothing. But I'm not as anti-hijab as I am anti-niqab. Like, I'm just, I'm not even like, oh, I don't like it. I'm like anti-niqab. Like, I would, if there was a vote that saying should be banned, niqab and burqa, and I would say yes. That is that is where I stand. And I say that as somebody who wore one, who was deprived of not allowed, like, leaving the house and all that sort of stuff, I would ban it. Even if it meant that I wasn't allowed to leave the house, because those few times I could leave the house, people would know that I was a fucking child. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I also, I mean, I, I I might have issues with the hijab and the ideology behind behind it, but I certainly would never support any kind of legal ban on it. On the niqab or the face veil, I also would support banning it, but I wouldn't support banning it under the name. Like if, in the if there was a law passed that they said you know the we're banning the niqab or the burqa, I think there should just be a law banning covering your face because yeah. I mean, for, for like, put aside Islam for a second. There's a million things you do in the day that require showing your face, right? If you're driving, yeah. if the you know you get pulled over for whatever reason, a tail light, you sped, you passed a, a stop sign, whatever it is, the first thing you do, show me your identification, and show me your yeah. driver's license, and you have to match the the photograph to the person. If not, this could be somebody else's license, or you know. It, there's a million other things when when you're sometimes when you pay with a credit card they want to see your your identification to buy pharmaceuticals whatever it is there's tons of things throughout the day sometimes at the bank they have to check your ID I mean and and when these things happen I don't imagine if there's a woman in a cob she just pulls up her veil like nothing it's like no it's that's supposed to stay on all the time um, yeah so. So, so I mean, we all accept the fact that if you go to a liquor store, if the police pull you over, that they they have to match your ID to your face. We all like as a society, we all agree with that. So, I mean, if we agree with that, 
then we're we're all accepting the fact that we have to show our face at least a yeah. lot of the time so uh, uh, i mean already just with that we're already saying that by law we have to show our face right there's not there's not exactly um um, like an anti-mask law, maybe. I mean, in some countries there is. It might depend where we're talking about. But most places, we already come to that agreement that we have to show our face a lot, a, a lot of the time by law, if we're if they're checking ID. And w with that alone, and and especially you add on all these other things with that we've been talking about with with the face veil. It, it, I yeah, I, I don't I don't see any real good argument that it should be allowed. Yeah, and I feel like there has been cases in Australia where Muslim women have gotten away with like not showing their face, and it frustrates me because I think what sort of precedents are you creating that you know like like I like with my mum like she's she's a full Nabi and like she'll turn around she'll be like to police officer like, go get me a female officer before I show you my face that's what she'll do she'll be like go get me a female officer I'm not showing you my face when we go like when we were going through the airport. She would literally, she would hold up queue in an airport and demand that they bring her a female so that she could show her face to that female because she would not show it to a male. Even though her passport picture has her face there and I could never understand that logic. And it, 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 it's, you know, like a, kind of this is one aspect of a big thing where I feel like unfortunately the world is becoming too afraid to question Islam. They're scared of Islam and I think it's fucking stupid. It's just a religion. But, you know, like, and, and they know this. The Muslims know this. They know they could stamp their feet up and down and yell, oh, it's Islamophobic, and, and they'll be able to get their way. Like, we have a woman who refused to stand for the judge in court. You have to stand for the judge in court. Like, that's that's the thing. That's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're in contempt of court, and she refused. There was this big hullabaloo about it. And it's like, if you're not sharing these values in Australian society or whatever society you're in, why are you even here then? Why? If you don't want to, like, you want to force your daughters to be deprived of an education or force them into marriages or um, force them to wear a club or, you know, you, you treat them like second-class citizens, why are you in this free nation? Well, That's the question I, I Yeah, have. I mean, it's not just the value, but things that are there by law. If they're in the law, there should be no religious exception. The, you know, just the fact that it's somebody's religion. Well... I, I think it's very unjust that, for example, that's, uh, you know, not not standing for for the judge or um, there's like there was a story in Canada of a woman who took the oath for citizenship wearing the niqab, even though you, you technically by law, you have to show your face and th things of, of, of this nature. But all these exceptions that are given to religious people, I think it's very unjust that if I in those same situations just said, well, as an atheist, me, I just don't want to do it. I just choose not to. It's not my religion. I just choose not to do it. Well, I wouldn't get an exception in that case. So, no. What? What? Wait. Why is a person has a better reason? Is that they believe that there's a sky daddy telling them they have to do this, so they get a pass. But I, as a person who's sane and logical and rational, and I just, eh, for whatever reason, I just don't want to do this. And then I don't hmm. get that 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 pass. Well, either we both get that pass, or none of us do. No double that, standard. No double standard. I'm like for um for any law, uh, for example, 
um, there's been debates about the, 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 the niqab or sometimes the, the hijab in certain cases, for example, using a hijab in a, in a workplace where they don't allow to wear hats or in the military or, or things like that. And they give them a religious exception or places where you can't, you have to show your face and they give an exception for people with the niqab. My position is very simple. If I can't show my face, you can't show your face. If I can't wear a hat of any kind, you can't either. That's it. There's no special signs to it. Just no double standards. That's all I ask for. No discrimination. No, no, no exceptions. Just if I can't do it, you can't do it. There's nothing special about Islam that they deserve that, that kind of uh, exception. And to treat it like it is, and it's something exceptional that deserves a special treatment, that's discrimination against other people. It's discriminating against me. It, like if, if, if there's something a, a Muslim can do that I can't by law, well, that I'm being discriminated against that in that case. Oh, they can cover their face in this area, but you can't. Just to, you have to you have to be a religious person to do it. Well, then you're discriminating against me. Technically, there's a law that applies to me and not that person. And very well, yeah. rarely do they see it that way. But I see it that way because I'm think, I, I've think, never been religious. I, I think also it's because some people are too afraid to question, so. They won't turn around and be like, well, why are you letting that person get away with it? But I can't. Mm -hmm. And I always like to bring up the fact that, um, you know, the spaghetti monster. Yeah, the um, spaghetti monster. You know, there's a guy in Australia who successfully appealed being allowed to wear his colander on his head in his license picture. He's like, well, everyone, some people, he goes, this is a religious garment for me. I'm going to wear my strainer on my head. And he got away with it, you know, so... You know, if it's going to apply for one, it applies for another. I agree with you in that stance. And you know, it's in Australia we're having we're starting to see this sort of shift, and a lot of and it's so frustrating. And I um I've actually was speaking about it today, and I was ranting because I love to go on rants. And I was speaking about how there's such a double standard when it comes to how Muslims act or treat or speak about things like. Um, I was watching a video and there was this, you probably all know the video I'm talking about. Um, it was one of our favorite Islamic scholars. Um, and he was basically saying that a 14 year old girl was dressing so that men could rape her. How is that an acceptable thing to say in the society nowadays? Like how sick do you have to be in the head to go up to a child and tell her that the way she's dressing means that somebody wants to rape her, but that's okay because that's his culture. But if, say, my partner went up to a 14-year-old girl and said, oh, the way you're dressing is going to get raped, oh, my God, he would get dragged through the courts for that. You know, it's it just, I think it's ridiculous, and I think people need to stop tiptoeing around. It's just a religion, yeah? It's not the boogeyman. Yeah. There's no one's going to come down and, like, well, Muslims might. But, like, no sky anybody, like, no mystery man in the clouds or anything like that's going to come down and be like, hey, stop picking on Islam. We're innocent. We're this. No, it's not going to happen. It's just a religion. They have a book. You've got Christianity, you've got Judaism, Hinduism, you've got so many religions on earth. There's nothing more special about it compared to those other religions. And, the, and the, another horrible aspect of what you just talked about is that to even say it's like it, it, it's their culture, therefore it's accepted. It's not even their culture in most Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. Even that comment by that guy mm -hmm. about raping that little girl. In the average Muslim person in most Muslim countries, most people would be horrified also by that. But the hardliners yeah. in... in for example, in Australia, you know, if that happened, 
they would say, oh, you're discriminating against us. It's Islamophobic. They use that and they say it's, oh, uh, it's yeah. our culture. It's not even their culture. That's not even true. Um, so there, there's an abuse of, of, of that saying and that feeling that of tolerance and multiculturalism and and to to and for westerners the non-muslim community to accept that to accept oh well you know we we find this morally horrific and completely unacceptable for non-muslims but uh, they're brown eh, you know maybe saying that to a you know that to a little girl man eh, what can we do really no that 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 you're really holding these people yeah. because of their skin color and and heritage and whatever it is their background to a lower standard and yeah, you, yeah. You, you don't even want to get me started on the sort of cases that are currently going through our court system where people are getting off on heinous crimes purely based on their culture because they don't understand it's wrong and it, it, it's it's just like why is this happening like this is australia like this is you know we have a thing and there's this huge debate at the moment about multiculturalism is it working is it not and from my experience of being in many different communities now, you know, since I've left home and being at home, I think multiculturalism can work if people assimilate. I think it will work because if you look at Australia and you look at your your migration trends, so you've had, you know, your Irish and your English, your German, and then you had your Chinese and you had the Vietnamese and you had your Italians and you had Eastern Europeans and you had the Jews, and they've all kind of integrated into society. But sad. And even Indians, Indians coming to Australia have integrated into society, but you have Muslims who don't, and they get allowed to be put in this little bubble. Whenever they come to Australia, they get put in these little pockets and little ghettos of Muslims, and they can do whatever they want in them, and no one's going to question them. No one goes to them. Like, um, we have a politician in Australia, and I'm not a fan of her as a human being. Her name's Pauline Hanson. But um, when she was running for parliament or her seat, she, there were some things that she wanted. Um, she's very much an anti-Muslim person. Is she the one who showed uh, up wants... to Parliament in a niqab? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that story, but I, a little bit, so you can tell it maybe in yeah. detail. Yeah. She, um, but she basically part of her mission statement was that all mosques and all Muslim schools should be audited. So everything they're teaching in them, and I was like, no, I would take that a step further. All religious schools and all religious institutions should be audited by the government. A government official should come in and let's check to make sure everything that's being taught in these schools is for the all Australian curriculum. Totally oh, yeah. I agree with all religious schools. Yeah. I, I'm like all, not double standards. Um, and yeah. she was saying that you know, like the niqab should be banned and things like. And I agree with some of these things. Like I don't agree with all of her um her principles because she's a racist. Um, but I agree with some of the things she said and um regarding the her, her stunt in parliament oh i can tell you i was in hysterics when i when i saw that um she basically walked in she just showed them how easy it was for her to just waltz right into parliament with an apartment because no one stopped her she didn't put you it know, on like, inside the parliament she walked into the parliament that way apparently Apparently, yeah, she just like walked in and security just kind of went, they didn't even check her ID, check her as a human being. But here's the thing, even if they checked her ID, that's the point. She walks into Parliament. like they didn't. Right. right. They didn't even bother. Like, so in Australia, you can actually go and listen to Parliament. You can like physically go there as a human being and listen to the Parliament speak. Mm -hmm. And um, so she did that. And like, no one stopped her. That's why we're such, it's just what she says. It's like, nobody stopped me. 
And everyone, instead of understanding the point of what she was trying to say, everyone's like, oh, she's being racist. She's mocking Muslims. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just kind of like, oh. And I think another thing is because I grew up in such an extremist version of Islam, the only Muslims I knew were obviously other extremist Muslims. And so when I tell people there are actual people in this country who've been convicted of plotting a terrorist attack to happen on the soil, on Australian soil, they had specific targets in this country. Everyone is shocked and horrified that how could the poor, nice Muslims want to do this? And it's because they're this complete, uh, they're basically victims now. I think um, Abed said it amazingly where he said that they, they don't see the victims for the, the brown skin or something like that, like they, they, or, or something along the lines of that where when white people questioned and did all that sort of stuff, it was seen as enlightenment, but when brown people do it, it's Islamophobic. Or, or just kind of like paraphrasing it and try, I'm probably muddling everything up. It's 12 a.m. for me. I'm falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, just, the, just I mean, before we um, step away from that, the subject of the veil, I, I find very fascinating the situation of your mother um, as an example of the typical things said about the veil. It's always defended when by the phrase saying it's a choice. It's a choice. That's always uh-huh. the, the 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 excuse behind it that it's it's not forced. It's a choice. Well. To begin with, it is off. In, for example, in your household, for you, it wasn't a choice. But no. but in the case of your mother, I I find it fascinating that. Y- so for you, it's not a choice. For her, it was. For her to put on the hijab and then the, the niqab was one hundred percent. We we can say, her choice. It wasn't forced on her by a family or anything like that. But hearing your story, if some you know if a person heard this your story from the beginning. We, we would both agree, yes, it was a choice, but can you tell me after listening to your, your, you know, your story that it was a good thing, even if it was a choice, that, that it was feminist because it was a choice, that it was progressive because it was a choice. People can choose to be fundamentalist, misogynistic, and uh, limiting women, even if they are women themselves, like your mother decided to limit herself by choice and and that bleeded on to her family and you growing up and it, and it wasn't a good thing i've i've always kind of had this stance where because obviously i know muslim women and i've debated muslim women and i've studied islam quite intensively and you know this whole statement uh, the hijab is a choice okay if you want to really break this argument down the hijab is a choice it's not, because in the Quran, in Surah Nisa, it states that the believing women pull their veils and cover themselves. Believing women. So if you want to be a believing woman, you cover yourself. Yeah. The, and then the hadith that relates to that is uh, is from Aisha, and she states that when the ayats for the hijab came down, the women of the Ansar, the women in Medina, tore their aprons from their skirts and wraps it among themselves. And if the hijab is really a choice, why was it that only free women were allowed to wear it but slave women weren't allowed to wear a hijab? If the hijab is a choice and it's nothing to do with sexuality, hiding your sexuality or modesty culture, why is it that an old woman who is past menopause doesn't have to wear a hijab anymore? Is that really a choice? Is it really a choice when you're in a religion that's basically your culture and your society says, if you don't wear a hijab, there's kind of something wrong with you. Like, why aren't you wearing a hijab? Is there a choice when you're peer pressured by your fellows to put a hijab on? Is there a choice in any of that sort of stuff? Like, I 
don't think there is a choice because at the end of the day, if you don't wear it, you're sinning. So you don't have a choice. If you believe in a God and you don't wear a hijab, you are sinning. So where's your choice? Um, I need. I, I want to skip to another subject because we're just uh, mm. we're running too long. But I wanted to know. Sorry. Right. Since you left home, that story of you running out and then you you got a job and and everything. Did you have any interactions with your family since then? Uh, a few. Um, I reconnected with my family because I falsely believed that they would accept me for who I am. I believed in their lies of saying that they wanted to build a connection and they wanted us to be a family again. They missed me, but they loved me, and I fell for it. And that like lasted for a day, and then they ripped my heart out and belittled me how in my existence. Um, is it, it was kind is of it an because honor they didn't thing. accept you as a non-Muslim and the way you were living your life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they didn't. Um, I re- very recently got in touch. Well, they got in touch with me, uh, my family, and um. I actually went and saw my mum for the first time in, it was five years, I think. And I went with my partner because I was like, I am not seeing this woman alone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that was the first time she met my partner and my partner and I have been together for seven years. And, um, oh, it just kind of solidified the fact that there is, nothing I can do that's going to make up for betraying the family. Nothing. Mm. Um, she doesn't respect my choices. She doesn't, not even, not even the choice of me being an atheist or my choice of living my life. Like even the simplest things where, you know, I'm not an affectionate person and boy, a psychologist probably have a field day as to why I'm not an affectionate person. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she, like, I hadn't seen her in five years and she forced affection on me and I was like, I'm not, I don't do it. She just forced it on me and she started, you know, and then at first I was a bit polite and then she started mocking, like, my partner and things that he enjoys and started mocking me and saying that I, you know, like, just, like, all these little picking on me, picking on us things. And I'm like, I haven't seen you in five years. I haven't spoken to you in five years and all you can do is pick on me and my partner and how we live our lives. And... It kind of solidified to me that there is – I had a lot of unresolved issues with my mother. So what I did Don't was – <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all. Don't we all. Um, so what I did was I um, compiled a, a letter. I wrote her mm. this massive thing and I confronted her about everything, about all of the abuse I endured in the home, about – uh, so like the violence about you know all the pressure she put on me as a child and forcing the club on me and how I was feeling like I literally poured my heart and soul like we're talking not just like you know seven years uh, five or six years at that time but six years of me leaving home but every pent up emotion I've ever had sorry um growing up and I poured my literal heart and soul onto this um this email. And she responded back saying, I have no clue what you're talking about. This is all in your head. Allah needs to guide you. 
So I was like, fine, bye, de la box, delete, don't contact me again. Because <laughs> it, 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 then it solidified in me that, you know, she kept saying all these things that she wants to build a connection, but she couldn't even acknowledge everything that she'd done to me. She said that it was all in my head. Even, um, or, or she blamed my, um, my stepdad for it. She blamed him for it all. And I think it just showed to me that she's not ready to acknowledge everything she's done, um, everything she allowed to be done. I think she, and I think it's because perhaps she's weak and if she does acknowledge all the stuff that she's done, her illusion that she's living might crumble down around her. So, um, yeah, and with my siblings, uh, one brother said that I asked him, oh, can I come see my nieces and nephews? And he was like, no, and I was like, why? He's like, you know why you're a traitor. Um, another brother said I deserve to be raped and murdered. So I was like, cool, no worries. I'll probably see you as a suicide bomber in Syria or something. <laughs> um, and one sister of mine who I thought was more liberal, um, you know, because she was saying comments like, oh, you know, I wish that Muslim women could marry whoever they wanted. Like it doesn't if they were Muslim or not Muslim. Like I wish blah, blah, blah. I said all signs. And then we got onto the talking about slavery and she's like, yeah, I don't agree with slavery. That's wrong. But, you know, Islam can change. And I was like, okay, wow, this is great. And then she turned around and said to me just casually in a conversation, she's like, oh, you know, if you're in a Muslim country, they'd kill you, right? And I'd, I'd have not, I wouldn't have any issues with it. So as She you said tell, that seriously, a, not jokingly? Yeah, seriously. Like, it was, mm-hmm. And it's just like with a, like a shrug. She was just like. Well, you know, if you were in, like, Pakistan or something, they'd probably kill you. So, And I wouldn't really have a problem with that because, you know, you left Islam and that's how it is and just, like, shrugged your shoulders. And I was just like, okay. Um, but, yeah, and it rips my heart out because, you know, especially with, like, um, my youngest siblings, like, I left home when my youngest sibling was, like, one or two and he doesn't recognize me. He doesn't know who I am. And it's fucking hard because it's like I knew you as a baby and I'm a complete stranger to you. And... Um, do I regret leaving home and not having a functioning, healthy relationship with my parents? No, I, no, I don't because I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't have the strength and the conviction that I have today. I wouldn't be able to do the things that I do today because I've done everything that I have, obviously with support from people like friends and whatnot, but I have, I have become who I am by myself. No one's molded me to be this person that I am today and I'm incredibly proud of who I am today and there's nothing I would never ever sacrifice who I have become today to please my family I, I just won't do it and it, and this activism you, you do online can you talk about that a little bit before we sign off like what, what is your in- intention why do you feel you need to do it um, I, so I didn't know what an ex-Muslim was until about two years ago. <laughs> so, um, I was reading a news article and, and I saw ex-Muslim and I literally, my reaction was, what the fuck's an ex-Muslim? <laughs> like, I had no idea. Um, because it's not, it's not something that I knew what it was. Like, I knew I was Muslim or anything. And, um, but I noticed there was, a lot of people who were speaking, besides Yasmin Mohammed, who was one of the first people I followed back in the day, back on Tumblr days of ex-Muslims, um, 
there were other girls who were from liberal families who were like, oh, you know, it's going to be fine, it's going to be easy, you can just leave home and blah, 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 blah. And like, my parents are fine with me not ready to job. And then I was reading articles and, and posts and stories of like, explore some girls who were in similar situations to me and who were depressed and felt like there was no hope. And I was like, no, you can survive. You can get out of it. So that's what inspired me to create the Malafidian. And I started, I was only on Tumblr. And then someone was like, oh, you should, you should get a Twitter. So then I got a Twitter. <laughs> and then someone was like, oh, you should start YouTube videos. And I was like, okay. And then I started YouTube videos. And um, I feel like we can never have too many voices speaking out because it's something that I am a very firm believer on um, and it's part of the inspiration as to why we created uh, myself, Obeyed, and the Red Murtar Dean um, created Heritage Corner is everybody's journey is unique. It doesn't matter if you're from a Saudi family who is religious to a Pakistani family that you know, no one wears a hijab and no one prays and whatever because everyone's journey to apostasy is, is different. Um, no one's is better or worse or, 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 or it's like there's, there's no different, like there's a difference, but it doesn't mean that you're not, your story's not worth telling. And that's why I speak up because there's no one else doing it. And in Australia, there's like three of us, <laughs> three of us speaking up right now in all of Australia. Um, but there has to be yeah, more. So there has to be, right? There, in Australia, um, well, given that I constantly do like you know shouts like, "Hey, where's my Australian ex Wilson's at?" and then like no one responds. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where are you? Oh, um, no. So like off the top of my head, I know um, Mind of a Chef on WordPress, or I think there's like the Apostate on um, Twitter, and then there's also I've recently met him. Um, Ex Wilson atheist. Um, he was on a Abdullah Samir's um, channel recently. He's again another like activisty ex Muslim in Australia that I've met. Like there's literally none because I I find out and, and almost everyone who says they're Australian ex Muslim gets directed towards me because apparently I'm the only prominent one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I um I I think that's absolutely true. The more more voices that are out there, the better. Um, because a lot of this is so unknown, uh, like we were talking about before, these people are very isolated in their homes or their communities, especially when they're in families that are more fundamentalist. And so if it wasn't for these few voices coming out that have only really come out in the last five years, but definitely 10 years ago or more, I, mean, I think besides Ayan Nursi Ali, no, n nobody knew anything about this, really, despite it's, it being such a gigantic religion that exists in over 50 Muslim majority countries and then all the minorities in all over the rest of the world. So I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, do you want to also talk, uh, just give a shout out to where people can follow you and all like your channels and things like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I am the Nullifidian on everything. <laughs> so it's at the, <laughs> like everything. Uh, Tumblr is the Nullifidian Tumblr, uh, WordPress is thenullifidian.wordpress, Twitter is at thenullifidian, Facebook is thenullifidian. Like, I'm really, like, genius when it comes to naming things. Um, you can find me on any of those. You can send me a message, whatnot. I respond. I talk to people. Um, 
also part of Heritage Corner podcast. So that's just Heritage Corner everywhere <laughs> as well. I mean, that's pretty much it. That's where you can find me. Send me a message. I need friends. I'm a lonely person. Okay. Well, thank you for being on. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.